And so a large part of what I focused on at the beginning was how do you go from zero knowledge to simply just plugging a box in and having that box discover everything that's inside of the environment. And then also actively going out and sort of interrogating each individual device on the network to see if it speaks the protocols that, uh, that, that you're looking for. You know, those techniques can be used to, to really find uh, the majority of these devices. You know, I didn't want to start with an application and then work my way down the stack. I wanted to start with the hardest problem, which was the integration piece, and then work my way up the stack. My name is Sean Cooley. I'm the founder and CEO of Mapped. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Sean Cooley created the platform bringing together all things within the industrial environment. All this and more on Code Story. Sean Cooley was born and raised in L.A. His mom worked at Xerox, and his dad was an auto mechanic. So needless to say, at an early age, he was pulling things apart electronically and mechanically. He's an avid snowboarder, usually shredding some snow at Mammoth Mountain, and a kite surfer. He says he is terrible at the latter, but he likes that the wind is doing most of the work for him. He also spent a ton of time on his pilot's license, but it got put on hold when he got busy professionally. At age 15, he went to work for Symantec, building internal websites, and after some time, he got the opportunity to build an Easter egg in Norton System Works for Windows. All in all, he spent 18 years at Symantec before moving on to Cisco and joining the IoT side of the world. During his time at Cisco, he started to see the fragmentation of data in the industrial environment, so much so that he set out to create the business intelligence layer sitting on top of the raw network of devices. This is the creation story of Mapped. So Mapped is a data infrastructure platform. We bring together all the people, places, and things inside of commercial and industrial environments. Uh, and so if you think of sort of a stack inside of one of these commercial or industrial environments, you've got the devices that are that are doing things inside of the environments. You know, think of the HVAC controllers and the lighting controllers, you know. In a, in a manufacturing floor, you've got robotic arms and, and conveyor belts and other sort of process automation pieces. The, the sort of next layer up uh, tends to be a network infrastructure. The network infrastructure brings those pieces together uh, on an IP network uh, so that they can communicate with each other. But the pieces tend to still be uh, sort of bespoke, right? They're, they're pieces of equipment that were installed by a system integrator. At some point over the last 50 years, you know, using whatever the, the latest bag of tools and techniques were. And now, you know, the companies that own many, many buildings or many retail stores or many data centers or many factories are trying to get data across their entire environments. Even though these things are all IP connected, they tend to be from different vendors, you know, installed by different system integrators, given different names, you know, functioning just slightly different, right? Because the goal at the time that they were installed was to operate that environment, not to, you know, provide a single business intelligence layer uh, for the company. 
Um, and so now that they've been IP connected, you know, we, we go in and we build on top of that, the data infrastructure that sits on top of that network infrastructure. And so you can think of it as the, the missing piece between sort of the raw network and the applications and business intelligence that you're trying to, trying to extract from your operations. During my time at Cisco, I you know, very quickly realized that uh, it was different from every other business at Cisco. It was probably my third or fourth conversation uh, after I'd, I'd come into the IoT team, uh, where the customer looked at us and said, have any of you actually been to an oil rig? We sort of uh, looked around the room and, and nobody could say yes. And so it led, to, it led to four years of me really just visiting any customer I could, whether it was a manufacturing floor, you know, the roof of a building or the sub-basement of a building, you know, going behind the scenes at an amusement park or, you know, into an oil refinery or out on an oil rig. I just wanted to feel the pain that the customer was going through and, and really understand it firsthand. And those sorts of, of, of discovery trips led to a, a repeated pattern that I kept seeing over and over again. You know, I would get on, on stage for various Cisco events and say things like, you know, Gartner predicts that there will be 25 billion connected devices by 2025. Uh, and then the next year it would drop to 22 billion and the next year it would drop to 20 billion. And that mix of sort of the, the numbers continuing to move down into the right, plus what I was observing from customers, which was they would do a pilot in one of their environments and that pilot would take them a year to build and, and deploy. And then they would go to move that pilot to the next environment, to the factory across the street or the refinery on the other side of the country. And it turns out that all the work they had done for integration, all the work they had done to, to sort of extract data out of those systems and bring it into the dashboards and the analytics that they were trying to put together had to be done again. It had to be done from scratch because that factory across the street or the refinery on the other side of the, of the country had no sort of commonality with the systems that were in the first one where they built the pilot. Um, and again, this was just a side effect of the various system integrators using whatever was the best set of tools at the time. So this pain of integration plus the, the sort of droppings you know, uh, predictions of connected devices or IoT devices um, really got me thinking about you know, what is the biggest problem that we have uh, in IoT or in digitization. And that problem is that as we try to bring together all these devices uh, in order to come up with transformative insights, um, the complex relationships among the devices are where that, that, that transformative insight comes from. And to do that, you have to deeply integrate with these systems. And so if we can free up the industry from having to do all the integration manually uh, and we can automate the processes of, of doing integration and sort of reverse engineering what humans had built in the first place, um, then we can really sort of open this industry at scale and allow developers who maybe have never set foot on a factory or have never gone into a refinery to really start to build applications by just purely looking at data uh, and, and starting to figure out ways to make sense of the data rather than spending all their time on integration. Tell me about the MVP. Tell me about how long it took you to build that first product and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. You know, I, I started in July of 2019. And the, the first thing that I started to build was an edge gateway. Um, so a little compute box that can go into one of these environments and really discover all the things that are inside of the environment. 
From my security background, uh, I had built sort of enterprise asset management uh, or network discovery techniques in the past. And so a large part of what I focused on at the beginning was how do you go from zero knowledge to simply just plugging a box in and having that box discover everything that's inside of the environment. And doing these sorts of, you know, passive network monitoring, you know, where we're sort of watching packets move across the network and looking for protocols that we know how to speak, like an S7 or a OPC or, you know, Modbus or BACnet. And then also actively going out and sort of interrogating each individual device on the network to see if it speaks the protocols that, uh, that, that you, you, you're looking for. You know, those techniques can be used to, to really find uh, the majority of these devices. And so, you know, because I was trying to start from the integration side of things, you know, I didn't want to start with an application and work my way down the stack. I wanted to start with the hardest problem, which was the integration piece, and then work my way up the stack. And so this edge gateway was really the, the first thing that, uh, that was built. Uh, and I probably spent seven or eight months working on that. It was, it was probably January or February of 2022, or sorry, 2020, um, before I, I brought somebody else, this guy named Jason Coe, who had spent uh, you know, the prior six years building out uh, as the co-creator of something called Brick Schema, um, which is a, a data ontology or a, you know, a data schema that, that allows you to describe the various constructs inside of these spaces uh, in a very prescriptive way. Um, and so, you know, I had started to build the pieces that, that move data out of the environment and into a cloud. And Jason had, had spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how do you describe them once they're in the cloud? And so that left this gap in the middle of a data pipeline, really the, the sort of things that we would bring together to really drive, you know, all the data from one edge uh, into the other edge. And these pieces were, you know, the, the really important pieces from a scaling standpoint, right? We can put a bunch of boxes out into buildings and factories and start moving data to the cloud. But when you get to the point where you've got, you know, millions of individual uh, bits of data moving through your data pipeline from one end to the other, um, and you have this target ontology, you really need to start to, to figure out how to scale the bits in the middle, how to shard the pieces that are in there. Unlike a lot of a lot of the rest of the, the world, um, you know, COVID really allowed us to focus on the architecture uh, and building out this MVP. And so, you know, we actually spent uh, about 18 months, you know, if you take from sort of July of 2019 when I started until we came out of stealth in March of 2021. 20, uh, um, but, you know, we started talking to customers in, in sort of that January of 2021 timeframe. And so we took about 18 months really building out that uh, that MVP. Um, and, you know, we were we were also lucky because there's there's just a lot of amazing um, open source and, and other tools that we can use along the way um, that I think really got us uh, you know, to where we are now much faster than it would have been you know, a decade ago. With any MVP, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs, and I think you touched on it a little bit, but I want to dive in a little more. You know, it could be technical debt, it could be feature cut, but what sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the short term with your MVP, and how did you cope with those decisions? You know, again, if we if we look at the tools that were available to us at the time, right, things like Janus Graph on the on the graph side or Scylla, or Pulumi allowing us to you know to build uh, sort of infrastructure as code. You know, there, there was just a lot of things uh, that that allowed us to move very very quickly on the technical side. 
you know, what, what ended up happening was we ended up overly focusing on the data pipeline and the security sort of aspects of that data pipeline and not really putting enough effort into the connectors. Uh, and so, you know, as a data pipeline, you know, the, the biggest thing you have to do is bring data into it. Uh, and so we had started with the edge gateway uh, and the edge gateway had, you know, pretty good support for most of the protocols that we cared about. But, you know, when we started to look at the larger landscape, there was a significant number of sort of cloud first vendors playing in these spaces as well. You know, companies that do like badge readers or uh, air quality monitors or vibration sensors, where those sensors are directly connected to their cloud. And so their cloud has APIs. And so I had started with this problem of how do you get data out of a physical environment? Um, and it turns out that some of the newer sensors in there were already getting data. They were already moving it to the cloud. And so, you know, even though we had built out this data pipeline and, and had put a lot of effort into it, I think we fell short on the connector side. Uh, and, you know, we, we've, we've come back around in the last couple of months. You know, we're at the point now where we can add a new connector in a, in a, in a matter of a couple of days. And so the ability to do that, I think, is, is really sort of changing the, the way that we you know, build out the product and meet customer demand. I think the other big one for us was that as we were building the website, um, you know, the customer portal where the customer comes and interacts with the product, um, we made a very early decision, uh, which is a, a somewhat weird decision given the era and, and how everything else is going, but we made a very early decision to not support mobile. You know, when you look at how uh, facility managers or factory operators are interacting with the, the systems that they have in, the, in, in those environments, they're not doing it from a mobile device today. Uh, and that's not to say that they won't in the very near future, but the customers that we spoke to, you know, sort of told us, look, I'll either have an iPad or I'll have a, a full-blown laptop uh, or a desktop machine that I'll be interacting with. It was very, uh, I would say, counterintuitive for us to, to sort of not focus uh, on the, the mobile space uh, at the beginning. So from that point, you've got the MVP, you've made your trade-offs, you're getting some traction. How did you progress the product from there and how did you mature it? And I think it'd be really interesting to hear how you made your roadmap and how you figured out, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. You know, I would say on the roadmap side, it's a it's a mix of intuition and just talking to a lot of customers. Um, you know, we we would get in front of pretty much anybody that we could, sort of tell them what we're up to. You know, try to figure out what systems they have in their environment. Uh, you know, how those systems are connected, um, what remote access they have into those systems. You know, all, all those sorts of things that would help us really shape the backlog of protocol adapters and connectors and and other pieces along those lines. We were lucky enough, uh, my, my CTO, uh, you know, had previously built a, a company called Tropo, which was a, a competitor to Twilio. He left there and joined Twilio. And so his entire you know, background has been in developer ecosystems and developer APIs. Um, you know, my chief data scientist is, is Jason Coe that I talked about earlier, the you know, co-creator of, of Brick Schema. Um, which is this ontology that is, you know, very robustly defines uh, all the sort of devices and relationships inside of these environments. And then I had spent, you know, four and a half years, uh, you know, visiting every customer environment I could get my hands on and, and talking to them in the past. And so using a mix of our backgrounds, plus those conversations, you know, the ongoing conversations with customers, you know, we, we continue to shape the roadmap. We continue to find new ways to be innovative and to 
you know, sort of speed the, the uh, integration of these environments. The product over the months that we've been out there with it, um, the things that we've been focused on are really around scalability, uh, you know, our ability to, to control uptime uh, for the product, right? We, we want to make sure that if we are the data pipeline they're counting on, um, you know, that our product is up and available. Uh, you know, again, these environments oftentimes have very sensitive data that's coming out of them. The, the customers are very concerned about where that data goes. You know, there, there's a lot of formulas that end up in the data, um, you know, inadvertently, but you want to make sure that it's secure. Um, and similarly, you want to make sure that you're not creating a path for an attacker to get back into one of these environments, right? If they, they come in and attack our cloud APIs, that they can't use that to sort of leapfrog all the way back into the environment. And so, you know, along the way that included things like, you know, how quickly can we deploy to new clouds? You know, if we work with a customer, uh, you, you, you can imagine a large retail customer may not want us to be in the Amazon cloud, right? Um, similarly, you may end up working with a, another customer that may not want us to be in the Microsoft cloud. And so how quickly can we deploy to new clouds? How quickly can we be a multi-cloud product uh, that allows us to serve those customers and serve the needs that they have? Um, and then I think the, the last one is, is really around new ways into buildings. Uh, and so even though I had spent uh, a significant amount of time on the hardware and the box that goes into these buildings, um, it turned out that that's not always the best way to get data uh, out of these environments. And so we started looking for ways to take the same software that was running on our edge gateway and look for new deployment mechanisms for it. Things like, you know, either us hosting it in the cloud and VPNing into these environments if we can, uh, or delivering a containerized experience to the customer where they can deploy it into Kubernetes uh, or Docker or any other sort of, um, you know, open uh, container image compliant uh, platform that they have inside of their environment. Um, and that allows us to more quickly deliver uh, and also reduce our costs uh, along the way to get into these environments. Well, let's switch to team. So tell me how you built your team and tell me what, what you looked for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you. You know, when, when the company started in July of 2019, you know, I very much wanted to build an LA-based tech company. Um, you know, my uh, the, the first 18 years of my career had been in, in LA and the, you know, the next six had sort of been living on airplanes. There was definitely a desire to to sort of build a team around Los Angeles. Um, you know, COVID very quickly changed my mind on that. Um, you know, I think once we were all working from home, uh, it became very easy for us to really go after the best people anywhere on the planet, uh, rather than trying to continue to build in LA at the time. You know, we we were lucky enough that uh, you know one of our early investors is also the CEO of a company called Oyster, uh, and Oyster does this employer of record, uh, you know, model for us to be able to hire in other countries um, and makes it very easy for us to, you know, sort of hire folks in whatever country they happen to be in. And, and you know, Oyster takes on all the, the logistics of, of what that means. We, we instead switch to trying to find the people that we could, you know, see proof that they were sort of the best in the space at what they were doing. A guy named Alex, uh, who had been a, a lead contributor to something called Janus Graph, uh, which is an open source Apache project, um, but is really the heart of, of everything we do at this point. And for anybody that's worked with graph or graph databases in the past, 
um, you know, it's a very hard thing to scale. It's a very hard thing to customize. Uh, and so when we start looking at things like how do we do permissioning on individual edges or vertices inside of the graph, or how do we scale it, or how do we shard it? You know, these questions all come back to Alex. Uh, and Alex's ability to, to really deliver on these things, uh, you know, is derived from the amount of time that he spent uh, inside, of, inside of all of uh, Janus Graph. Similarly, uh, there was an open source project called PLC4X, uh, also an Apache project. And, and PLC4X is really a bunch of, of protocol drivers or protocol adapters for these on-prem protocols. It supports, uh, at the time, I, I think it's, it's about 10 different protocols that it has support for right now. Um, but Chris, the, the lead developer for it, you know, his understanding of, of sort of reading manufacturer specifications or, or standard body specifications on a particular protocol, you know, and we're talking low level wireline protocols, sometimes over serial buses, sometimes over IP, um, his ability to read those specs, turn it into a domain specific language that's used for PLC4X, uh, and then have code that generates, you know, C Sharp or Java or Go. Um, is really amazing. Uh, and again, you know, we were able to find Chris through uh, sort of reaching out um, and, and looking at other projects that were working on pieces of the puzzle that we had been doing. Um, I think similarly, our head designer, uh, Aaron Fenley, had, had previously been at Comfy, uh, which was a, a company that was acquired by Siemens um, and had spent, uh, you know, she had spent a lot of time in this space thinking about how to deliver products to the exact audience that, uh, that, that we are delivering to. Um, and, you know, finding her again, you know, she's based in Tennessee, you know, not, not something that we would have found if we were just focused on Los Angeles. Uh, and th so I think, you know, again, we, we benefited from the fact that COVID made us think differently uh, about the way that we were going to build our team and the way that we would go and find people uh, and bring them into the organization. Uh, and so, you know, as we move forward, we'll continue to, to look remotely and continue to, to pick up folks, um, sort of the, the best, best people we can, uh, you know, no matter where they are in the world. Well, let's talk about scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you fighting this as you grew? You know, I mean, scalability is always a work in progress. You know, we're we're always looking for new ways to to you know shard data, to you know you know push out workloads to different locations to to find things that we can do in here. Um, you know, we we again we're very lucky to have Jose, uh, who, you know, Jose De Castro, who's our our CTO. You know, having built a real time communications company, um, you know, dealing in phone calls and text messages that had to happen. You know, very scalably at uh, you know at, at uh, a broad range of systems, um, who you know had built that Tropo company that was acquired by Cisco, uh, and now is you know thinking through how we scale things out. Um, you know, Jose uh, be between Jose's experience and you know my time, uh, you know, sort of 25 years building enterprise and and you know large scale consumer applications. Uh, you know, I think that it's always been top of mind. You know, we're always thinking about. You know what is going to be the bottleneck? How do we how do we make that piece not the bottleneck? Um, and and again, you know, we're I think we're we're all living in a very um, lucky time uh, where you know companies are publicly describing how they do scalability. And so, you know, for example, in our graph, we took a lot of uh, sort of techniques from, from Uber, um, who also scales, you know, very largely across the entire world. Uh, uh, you know. One of probably one of the biggest graphs that exists out there 
um, you know, between vehicles and passengers and, and drivers and all the other pieces that are in there. Um, and Uber had built something called H3, uh, which is a, a partitioning um, you know, scheme for, for graph database that is based on geospatial constructs. And so it, it sort of splits the earth up into these hexagonals uh, and then each hexagonal can further be split up into more and more hexagonals. And so what it means is that, you know, when we pull data out of a building or pull data out of a factory, we can control the size of the hexagonal of the, of the shard or the partition that's being used uh, in, in that particular um, instance. And so, you know, if you look at somewhere like LA where there could be a bunch of buildings uh, on this, on the platform, we would break it up into very small sort of, you know, portions of space, uh, meaning that there'd only be, you know, maybe two or three or five buildings inside of that space. And then if, you know, if you look at somewhere like, a, like in Iowa, you know, maybe we can cover the entire state with one, uh, you know, one one partition because the amount of data that's coming into it is is drastically less. Uh, and so these sorts of techniques, you know, would have taken us uh, many many years to come up on our own. Uh, but because other companies have been so, you know, sort of outward facing around some of their architectures and some of the techniques that they use to to achieve these scales, you know, we've got a lot of good pieces we can pull from uh, to to sort of you know, speed up our ability to scale and to, to get to a point where we can handle, you know, hundreds of millions of, of data points, you know, pushing data into our platform every single second. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built with Mapped, what are you most proud of? The thing that I'm most proud of right now is our team. Uh, you know, we, uh, for, for a 13 person team have built uh, an amazing platform. Uh, and, you know, as we build out the team, you know, we, we will continue to have, uh, you know, very high standards for the, the people that we bring into the company. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be, um, just, you know, I think an incredible, uh, growth as we, as we add to it. Um, you know, the, the other pieces are, look, from an architectural standpoint, uh, you know, we, we built something that we call Mapped in a Box. Uh, and Mapped in a Box is our entire stack. It's it's all, you know, sort of hundred services and microservices and, um, you know, APIs and databases and other things that, that would normally be stood up in a cloud, um, but it can run on a local machine. And so it allows our developers um, you know, some of which are on Windows, some are on Mac, some are running Linux boxes, um, to very quickly run a local instance of our entire stack uh, and, and really, you know, very quickly build new functionality or troubleshoot things that aren't working quite right. Um, and then, you know, that same exact stack uh, moves into a data center, right? It moves into a, an Azure cloud or, a, you know, an AWS cloud. Um, and this this ability for us to to very quickly go from uh, you know a laptop scale to a full you know cloud deployment scale, um, I think is is one of the the best decisions that we made early on and and has allowed us to move very, very quickly. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. There's two mistakes uh, that come to mind over the time we were building um, that initial MVP. Um, you know, the, the, the two types of, of sort of graph databases that are out there, uh, you know, one of them is called RDF or Resource Description Framework. Um, some, some people call it a triple store uh, as well. Um, and then the other time, type is really a labeled property graph. Uh, you know, the brick schema 
piece that we started with uh, was really built for RDF. Uh, it, it was built with with this, you know, W3C RDF concept in mind. Um, and you know, we went pretty far down the path of an RDF database uh, before we realized that it just doesn't scale. Um, you know, it, at least it doesn't scale to the to the scale that we're looking for. You know, at, at the point where um, you know, if we if we get as far as we want, uh, and we've got every building on the planet into our platform, uh, there was zero chance that an RDF graph was going to scale for us. And so I think that, um, you know, when when we hit that realization, we were we were already pretty far down the line with RDF, and uh, you know, going back, uh, re-implementing our queries, re-implementing the way that we do permissioning and access control. Um, you know, re-implementing the way that we do sharding and the, the way that we, uh, you know, scale the, the really the heart of our entire product, um, you know, was a was a big hit to the team. Uh, and, and I think the team, you know, took it quite well. I think everyone had sort of started to see the writing on the wall. And so it was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a shock when it came, uh, when, when we had to make that decision, but it was definitely, you know, we, we had to we had to throw away something that we had been working on. Uh, you know, pretty hard for for many many months. Um, I think the other one for us is you know we we started out with a uh, with, with sort of a, a function based uh, you know cloud. We were we we were going to do these you know Azure uh, calls them functions, AWS calls them lambdas. Um, but really, when you get down to it and you start trying to operationalize and automate the deployment uh, of these functions. Uh, you know, we again we hit a wall. Uh, it, it wasn't easy for us to do infrastructure as a co as code, you know, in Pulumi or Terraform that would allow us to very quickly deploy these functions. Uh, and so we we made a we, we made a you know a very very late decision. Uh, you know, it was probably probably halfway, a little more than halfway through the process, um, to sort of abandon the function based deployments and switch over to a Kubernetes based deployment. And so. You know, our microservice framework uh, was sort of born out of out of our switch uh, from Azure Functions into Kubernetes, um, and again, you know, we we benefited from uh, there's a there's an open source project out there called Temporal um, that again spun out of Uber. Uh, it used to be called uh, I think Cadence uh, when it was inside of Uber, um, but you know, we we took Temporal and we built this uh, this you know gRPC based framework around it um, that allowed us to to both use Temporal. Uh, and the sort of scheduling and, and workload, uh, workflow type uh, type processes that were in there, um, but also access it through gRPC, uh, you know, an, uh, an RPC based, um, you know, I should say, re remote procedure call based mechanism that's on the on on our sort of inside of our cloud. Uh, and so, what we got out of that was significantly more flexibility, significantly more sort of scale and speed. Um, and I, I think that again, it was a very tough decision at the time, but the you know the the, the team responded fantastically and and was great about shedding uh, what was very quickly turning into to you know very heavy technical debt um, and turning it into an opportunity to you know sort of take the learnings that we had uh, and apply it to a new mechanism that would scale with us much much longer into the future. So, what does the future look like? For your product and for your team. On the product side, you know the the, the pieces that we're really looking at. Um, you know, our mission in life is to uh, you know expand the pool of developers that would um, otherwise not be able to target these very complex environments. You know, today if you want to walk into a Ford factory or a Chevron refinery, 
uh, or a you know a building that's that's run by Boston Properties, you know you need some pretty hefty credentials to be able to do that. You need a you need a product that has sort of proven itself um, in other environments, right? Which means that you've always got this catch twenty two of how you get into one so that you can scale into others. Um, and you know our our mission is to to really take all the load of of you know figuring out how to integrate with those environments and moving it up to a cloud API. So that when a developer, you know, think of a nights and weekends developer that's just trying to build something on the side that they want to think of, you know, that that's in, in their mind, that they can go in and try and sell it to a Boston Properties or to a Chevron or to a, you know, to a Ford, um, because they don't actually need to set foot on the factory floor or in the refinery in order to to finally make that sale, right? If we can if we can change this environment so that rather than you know, heavy sales and heavy integration teams and, and big, you know, sort of developer bases that are needed to do these things, that it can be a, a single developer working nights and weekends, building a product that eventually lands into a marketplace uh, of sorts where they can get the attention of those big companies and, and through a purely cloud API, show value to those companies. I think that expanding that pool of developers really gets us into a, a, a much better world, a world where you know, again, people are focusing on the, the the innovations and the value they want to bring, rather than the headaches of the integration that they have to do today. Um, and I think that that eventually leads to to what we call third and fourth party. Uh, and so, you know, sort of fourth party is not not a probably not the best term, but a, a data exchange type world um, where application developers in the third party sense, or eventually. You know, even the the sort of completely disconnected data consumers. Um, you can imagine that a, a first responder, you know, showing up to a hundred-story building, walking in, and just based on the fact that they're within the the sort of the premises, uh, that their mobile device is able to communicate with a cloud API that can show them where people are inside of the space, where the fire is, where the alarm is, um, you know, which elevators are still working, which ones have been shut down, which stairwells, give them floor plans. You know, those sorts of pieces of information, I think, come from uh, the ability to normalize the data and expose it through an API that then allows these other applications to make use of the data without, you know, today, if you walked into a building and you tried to do that, uh, you know, it would require hundreds of connectors. It would require, you know, all sorts of manual integration to happen in advance. And I think we can get to a smarter everything world. Um, you know, where everyone just uses this this sort of brick schema, this communication model and, and API that allows them to understand the people, places and things around them uh, and do it in a way where we, we don't have to focus on the integration or the vendors that were involved in the, the sort of first steps of it. So let's switch to you, Sean. Who influences the way that you work? Maybe a, a CEO, a CTO, an architect, a person, really, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why. That's a tough question. There's so many people I can think of. The first one that comes to mind is is Rowan Trollope. Uh, Ro- Rowan is the CEO of Five Nine, which is a you know a, a contact center in the cloud. Right when you call Delta, and it you know it has all the agents. Uh, that answer the phone, like Five Nine is the one that runs that uh, that contact center. Um, you know, the, the reason that I look up to Rowan so much is uh, when I when I started at Symantec, um, Rowan was in the cube next to me. Uh, you know, he was a software engineer uh, at the time, and you know, so Rowan and I have gone through a very similar progression. You know, Rowan, you know, many years ahead of me, 
uh, on the progression. But uh, you know, I think I have I've learned a significant amount from watching Rowan and, and watching the way that you know he tells stories to unite teams uh, and to to sort of paint the picture of the vision. Uh, for his company, you know, what it, whether it was Symantec at the time or Cisco or eventually Five9. Um, but, you know, that, that progression of how do you go from a very, very technical, you know, sort of heads down software engineer um, to leading a large organization and, you know, convincing the world to come along with your, uh, your vision. Um, and I, I think that he does it, you know, better than pretty much anyone else I've, I've seen out there. And so, you know, I take a lot of a lot of inspiration, a lot of cues from the, the things that he does. Well, we talked about mistakes, right? But a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently, or where would you consider taking a different approach? You know, it's it's tough with a, a data platform, right? When when you're looking at a building a platform, building APIs, like there is no. Um, easy path to a to a smaller version but I think you know if I could go back uh, I, I probably would have started much much smaller right started with one or two connectors started with a, a platform that maybe didn't scale quite as much but something that we could have gotten out into the market in a month or two uh, and then iterated as fast as we possibly could on it right I think that this is this like you know do less listen more uh, you know, get out to get out to the customers. You know, sell things, sell things faster. Um, you know, understand more deeply what's working, what's not. Um, you know, we're in a very good place right now. I think the the platform. Uh, you know, we we've managed to build something that is robust and scalable. Um, but I, I think that we missed out on on many many months, if if not a year or more, of um, you know early early customer feedback on uh, that could have shaped our product. Uh, and, and really driven us, I think, to, to revenue much more quickly uh, than we achieved. Um, but, you know, it's it's sort of the sh ship has sailed. I think that, uh, you know, again, we've, we've built something amazing and, and I think that we'll, we'll do just fine with it. But uh, definitely would have would have started smaller and iterated faster. Um, and again, you know, having come out of 25 years of, you know, Symantec or Cisco backing me on most things that I did, it was definitely a, a mind shift, um, right? Because in, in my head, you know, at a Semantic or Cisco, there is no start small, right? You, you start with the big grand vision and, and build it out. And, and I think that, uh, you know, being a first time founder, I, I fell into that trap. Um, and, you know, luckily, uh, I think, you know, had enough backing from VCs and, and uh, you know, customers that we did find that we managed to, to climb out of that trap and, and end up with, with something really nice, but uh, definitely fell into that trap as a first-time founder. Well, last question, Sean. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? The advice is is very similar to what I just said. Was our you know sort of uh, if I could go back, what I would do differently, uh, you know, which is make sure that you get something in front of customers as early and as as often as possible. Um, I think it's it's very easy for a an entrepreneur to fall in love um, with the thing that they've built, uh, and you know it it is easy to carry on down that path for a very long time. 
um, before you're willing to sort of show it to somebody else and, and truly open yourself up to feedback. Um, and it's, it's something that you, you know, everyone has to fight uh, when they're building something from the ground up because the sooner you get feedback, you know, the sooner you can pivot, the sooner you can you know, change direction, even if just slightly, um, to make your product more appealing to customers, to make you know, the customers happier about the things that you're building and, and really bringing them along for the ride. You know, there's a lot of value, especially in enterprise software. Uh, when the customer feels like they've contributed to the roadmap in a meaningful way, and the customer can see the product sort of shift and adjust based on the feedback that they're giving, um, you know, that, that has a lot of power in, in making the customer feel like they're a partial owner of the thing that's being built and, and really, you know, helping to drive that value uh, back to them, which, which, you know, keeps them along as a customer. And so, you know, I think the feedback would, would be, you know, very similar to what I, I just said, right, which is just get it out there early, get it in front of customers often, you know, like iterate as quickly as you can on the feedback that you receive. That's great advice. Well, Sean, thank you for being on Code Story. Thank you for telling the creation story of Mapped. Yeah, thank you for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.